From famous historical locations to lesser-known areas found in small towns, history leaves shadows that people today can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. Hello everyone and welcome to Historically Haunted. I am your host Ariel and today I will be talking about the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Some people claim that this lighthouse is the most haunted lighthouse in the United States. And after I heard some of these crazy ghost stories coming out of this place, I see why some people might think that. But before I get started, I got a new iTunes review from the username Cindy Brianna or Briani, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, I hope I said that right, but I wanted to thank you for your kind iTunes review, and I'm so glad that you're enjoying the show. I also wanted to thank my new Patreons, Katie, Lisa, Michelle, and Timothy. Thank you all so much for your support. And to all of my listeners, I appreciate you for clicking that play button for every new episode. You guys are all just awesome. I have been getting a lot of kind emails and comments during this whole pandemic situation about saying how I am an escape for you guys while you guys are stuck in either lockdowns or quarantines. So I feel so blessed and lucky that I'm able to bring you guys a new episode so that way you guys can find some kind of escape. I know that they definitely help me out because I don't know if it's just me, but I have been having an issue having uh, feeling motivated lately. And I think it's just because I'm waking up in the same house day after day, going through the same routines, trying to limit myself around big crowds. And as much as I say I'm an introvert, I have to admit, after a year of doing this, I'm pretty tired of it. I can't wait until we can all just go out there and be ourselves again. And I know that we'll get there. And that's the thing I have to keep reminding myself. I know we will get there. It's just, it's getting really frustrating. But luckily, like the vaccine is coming. So that's going to help a lot of elderly people not be able to get it. So that way we can all kind of just start slowly reopening up and going back into society. And I can't wait for it. We all just have to stay positive and just keep doing our own things and eventually this will all be over. If you ever wanted to find out more about me, you can check me out at my website at historicallyhaunted.net or you can check out my Patreon page for exclusive episodes and you get a name shout out on my show and you get some stickers and a thank you card. So you can check all that information out down below in the show notes along with links to my Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages. I'm quite a shy person when it comes to talking to new people. It's kind of funny, even though I'm doing a podcast, I'm still a very shy person. I'm always that person at the party that kind of just sits there with my drink and awkwardly nods at people as they talk to me and then just wish I wasn't there. And for me, that kind of seeps into emailing, commenting, things like that. So some days I swear, like, I want to comment back if somebody makes a nice comment, but I, like, my stomach gets in knots and I get too scared to do so. So this podcast is really helping me kind of break through my anxieties, um, social anxieties, definitely, uh, and connect with different people from all over the world. So I really appreciate this podcast. It's helping me out. It's helping me kind of get out there a little more and fight through my anxiety which is great because then I get to meet wonderful people like you guys who are my listeners and I really appreciate you guys. So just that's a roundabout way of me saying thank you guys so much for all your support. One more matter of business before I get started is Spotify. If you have been listening to 
my show on Spotify and you noticed that it just stopped working at a certain time and you had to download another app to listen to my show, I'm really sorry about that. I have been emailing them back and forth for a good month and a half and I can't figure out why that they just stopped putting my show out there. I tell them it's not working. Then they come and tell me, well, it should be because everything's fine on our end. And I look and everything is fine on my end. So we're still very confused. And I don't know if I'll ever be able to get on Spotify again. So if you had to download another app to listen to my show, I'm very sorry about that. But I think I'm like, there's nothing else I can do. I don't know how it got messed up, but it did. And even the people at Spotify are confused. So I'm sorry for any inconvenience that might have caused, but I hope that you found another app that you like enough to listen to the show again. One more thing to talk about before I get started is WandaVision. Has anyone started watching WandaVision? I think it is amazing. I am a huge Marvel fan though, so anything Marvel to me is gold, but WandaVision is incredible and I love history and I also love TV and film history. This could be a masterclass on how to set stage design and act in set time periods. Plus, the creepy Twilight Zone aspect of the show is awesome, including the mannerisms, the delivery, everything is perfect, spot on per decade. So anyway, just wanted to give that a shout out. Love WandaVision, can't wait for more. It's my new favorite installment in the MCU, but of course, because of the new direction they're going, it makes me really excited for movies like Black Widow and The Eternals, and I'm also super excited for the new Disney Plus series Loki and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I am so on board for those shows. And of course, Armor Wars starring Don Cheadle with War Machine. Oh my God. Okay, I'm done geeking out. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm such a nerd. Okay, we're done talking about that. Let's get into today's episode because today we are talking about one of the most haunted lighthouses in the United States of America. There is something that seems to link lighthouses to having extreme paranormal activity. Let's take a look at the history of this lighthouse and find out what might make it so haunted. After, of course, our monstrous moment. Since I am talking about lighthouses, I thought it would be perfect to have our monsters moment be about mermaids. Today, most people think of mermaids as pretty, red-haired, clam-wearing princesses that sing about wanting to be human and falling in love with the prince. The real folklore of mermaids is much more sinister. Mermaids are described as having the upper half of a woman's body with the lower half of a large fishtail. There is also a male version of a mermaid called mermen. Merman sightings are not as common as mermaid sightings, but people believe that mermen do coexist with mermaids. When people talk about both, they usually use the term merfolk. The folklore of mermaids can be traced back to Eastern Europe, Japan, and Africa, but sightings of merfolk have come from all over the world. The name mermaid stems from the Old English name mer, that meaning sea, and maid, that means a young girl or woman. So mermaid in Old English means sea maid. Mermaids are ancient creatures, and whether you believe in them or not, accounts of mermaid sightings can date back to the ancient Greeks. The first known story of a mermaid comes from Assyria in 1000 BC. 
This is quite a tragic story. The mother of the then Assyrian queen was goddess Artigas. Though she was a god, she fell in love with a mortal man. Through a tragic accident, she accidentally killed the man she loved. Filled with grief and blame, she jumped into a nearby lake with the intention of taking the form of a fish. But the water could not handle her power or her beauty. So instead, she turned into a half-woman above the waist and half-fish below the waist thus creating the first mermaid. Another famous mermaid story is also from the ancient Greeks. This story talks of Alexander the Great's sister named Thessinalike. I think that's how you say that. Yeah, Thessinalike. Okay, so in 295 BC, Thessinalike passed away, but instead of simply dying, she transformed into a beautiful mermaid. She then went to live in the Argean Sea, and whenever a ship passed by her waters, she would swim up to the ship and ask the crew, is King Alexander alive? Now, this was less of a, I want to know if my brother is still alive, and more of a, what's the password to pass by safely type of situation. Because if the sailors answered with the exact words, he lives and reigns and conquers the world, she would let them pass unharmed. If you said anything else to the question, she would become angry and conjure a massive storm and sink the ship, killing everyone on board. Now, while those are just two famous stories about people getting turned into a mermaid, sightings have been reported by the thousands, and the way a mermaid is described as looking varies. While some versions talk of a beautiful woman, others speak of a ghastly sight, of a half-woman, half-fish, with pale, rotting skin, green hair, much like a floating corpse. What mermaids are and how they act vary on location as well. In many parts of the world, mermaids have become known for being evil spirits that took pleasure in dooming men on ships. It was said that they would sing to get the men on deck to become entranced in their beauty, and this would then make the captain steer the ship right into the rocks. Some legends even have mermaids dragging men down under the water to their deaths after the ship was wrecked. Mermaids became connected to sirens, even though in Greek mythology, sirens are technically half-woman, half-bird-like creatures who would lure men to their island with their beautiful voice, and then they would kill everyone on board. So technically, sirens are not mermaids, but as time passed, they started to get the same reputation for dooming men. In Slavic mythology, mermaids were first depicted as benevolent water spirits that watched over fertility and agriculture. However, by the 1800s, the myth changed again to make mermaids the vengeful ghosts of women who died violent deaths by drowning. After they died, they came back as evil water spirits in the form of a mermaid and found pleasure in luring men and children to the water's edge to then drag them under. Ireland had what today we would consider the more modern view of mermaids, beautiful women but with green hair, who hung out around the rocks in small coastal towns. However, it's the mermen you have to watch out for. According to Irish folklore, the male mermaids are more fish than man, and they are seen as the evil ones, not the mermaids. According to Southeast Asian mythology, there is an Indian epic poem that talks about the mermaid princess named Shamaskikani. And I know I said that wrong, I apologize, but it means golden fish or also it's been, she has been called golden mermaid. So she set out to protect the ocean from a god named Hanuman, and he wanted to build a bridge with stones across the sea. The princess kept messing with his plans until the two of them met and eventually fell in love. The princess ended up helping the god finish his project, and today she is seen as good luck. In Scotland, mermaids can shapeshift. 
Mermaids transform into seals while they are at the water's edge and then shapeshift into humans once they go on land. Some mermaids like to tempt men and drag them to the water's edge and then kill them. Others seem to be able to choose if they want to stay on land or at sea. According to Scottish folklore, mermaids can decide to live a normal life as a human and even raise a family if they fell in love. Today, mermaids have been used in famous poems, stories like The Little Mermaid, written by Hans Christian Andersen, and movies like Disney's adaptation of The Little Mermaid. Mermaids have shown up in TV shows, and they are very popular in pop culture. While they are thought to be fantasy, there are people who say they really do exist. And considering how many sightings there have been of mermaids, it sounds like someone is seeing something out there in the waves. Personally, I find mermaids magical and dangerous. I don't know if they are a water spirit, a cryptid, or even an elemental, but I do think that mermaids could be real. And if you scoff at the idea of merfolk, just keep in mind that 80% of the ocean is unexplored. So until we have seen every nook and cranny of the ocean, I will keep holding out hope that mermaids do exist. The first known lighthouse was built in Egypt on the shore of the city of Alexandria. Construction began between 1300 and 280 BC. It stood 450 feet tall and was considered one of the original seven wonders of the ancient world. Ever since, lighthouses have been used as a helpful guide for sailors for thousands of years. St. Augustine Lighthouse is no exception, but it is more than just a lighthouse. St. Augustine, Florida holds an important part of American history that is not often found in our history books. Let's take a look at St. Augustine, Florida's history along with the lighthouse that is found on its shores. The St. Augustine Lighthouse was built on Anastasia Island in northern Florida, about 46 miles north of Daytona Beach and 41 miles south of Jacksonville. It overlooks Montanzas Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. St. Augustine is the oldest permanent European settlement in the United States. It was founded in September of 1565 by the Spanish before the English settlements of Jamestown or Plymouth Colony were ever established. Juan Ponce de Leon of Spain discovered the coast of Florida on April 2, 1513. He named the island La Florida to honor the Easter season and the Spanish Festival of Flowers. Florida means flowery or covered with flowers. Ponce de Leon returned to Florida in 1521 to build a settlement on the west coast of the peninsula of Florida, but they were attacked by Calusa Indians the moment they stepped on land. Ponce de Leon was hit in the leg with a poisonous arrow and the Spaniards retreated back to Havana, Cuba, where Ponce de Leon passed away due to his injuries. French explorer John Rabot had been sent to the New World to claim land for France. In 1562, he set up two outposts on the coast of today's South Carolina. One was named Charles Fort and the other Port Royal. 
Rabot returned to France, and these outposts had to be abandoned just two years later because Rabot never returned with any supplies. Rabot did return to Florida in 1565, but he started a new colony in what is today Jacksonville, Florida. After this, the French tried another settlement, but this time in northeast Florida, and they built the fort called Fort Caroline. By 1565, King Philip II of Spain heard that the French were exploring lands claimed by the Spanish in the New World. He then ordered Pedro Medinas de Alves to set sail to Florida to get rid of any French settlements and to set up a fort to prevent future settlements by other countries. Medina set sail with 10 ships and 1,500 men. The crew came upon the island Anastasia on August 28, 1565, which was the feast day of St. Augustine. He chose the site of the settlement and came ashore on September 8, 1565. He named it St. Augustine. In late September, Medinas and his men followed King Philip's orders and sailed up the coast to Fort Caroline to attack. The Spanish were greatly outnumbered by the French, so they were forced to retreat back to St. Augustine, expecting the French to attack them there. The French did arrive, but a hurricane hit and blew the French ships further south and sank them. After the tragic accident, very few Frenchmen were left to guard Fort Caroline, so Medinas and his men were able to easily take control of the fort. During the second attack, more than 140 French soldiers were killed, even though many of them were still in their beds and offered little resistance. Upon his return to St. Augustine, Medinas found out that the Frenchmen who had survived from the sinking of ships were coming ashore there. The men were given a chance to live if they would switch to Catholicism. 111 refused and were killed on the spot, while 16 said they would and were spared. Two weeks later, Commander Rabot and the surviving men washed up on the beach. The Spanish offered them a chance to surrender, which they did, but they were taken prisoner and brutally executed anyway. Most historians feel that if it hadn't been for a hurricane, the French would have defeated the Spanish and Florida would have been a French colony. The spot where the killings took place was named Matanzas, which means slaughters in Spanish. After this, St. Augustine became an important base for Spain in the New World. Trading ships that may have been damaged in storms could stop here for repairs. Also, warships that were hunting down pirates used the settlement for repairs and gain supplies. Missionaries were also sent here to try to convert the native people to Catholicism. Because St. Augustine was so important to the Spanish, it was frequently attacked by the English. Sir Francis Drake raided and burned St. Augustine, including the wooden watchtowers, in 1586. The English were establishing colonies in the Carolinas and Georgia during this time. The Spanish decided that they needed a better stronghold, so they began to build a Coquina stone fortress at St. Augustine in 1672. Coquina is a rock formation that is found on Anastasia Island. It is made up of millions of shells that is cemented together with sand. Coquina is the Spanish word for cockle, which is the main shell found inside the rock. The fortress was named Castillo de San Marcos and took 23 years to complete. They also built watchtowers to help them prevent attacks while the fort was under construction. A flame burned at the top of the northern watchtower, but it was not strong enough to signal ships out at sea. The flame was probably used more of a light source for the soldiers on watch. 
This watchtower slash lighthouse was also built out of Kotkina and lasted 200 years until it became a victim of erosion. British troops tried to attack the fort in 1702, but were unable to conquer the fort after fighting for two months. In a fit of defeated rage, they burned the town and then retreated back to the Carolinas. The English colonies were upset with the Spanish for owning Florida because it became a safe place for slaves running away from the plantations to live. Escaped slaves were granted freedom from the Spanish governor if they swore allegiance to the King of Spain and followed the Catholic religion. Because of this, St. Augustine became a destination for the Underground Railroad. The first legally free community of former slaves was founded here in 1738, and it was part of the fort's northern defenses. General James Oglethorpe, who was the governor of the British colony of Georgia, attacked St. Augustine in 1740. It was a stronger attack than the one in 1702, but they also failed to take control of the fort. After this, Florida experienced several changes of ownership, so to sum up the next 60 years or so, the British were given Florida with the Treaty of Paris in 1763. That ended the French and Indian War. After the American Revolutionary War, Florida returned to Spanish rule as a thank you for their help against England during the Americans' fight for independence. However, Spain was struggling at home at the time and didn't have much interest in Florida anymore. The Americans decided that they wanted Florida back since they didn't want it, and they got it back in 1821. The U.S. Army took over the fort, giving it a new name called Fort Marion. The U.S. Army also decided that the island was a perfect place for a lighthouse. The light of American lighthouses was harder for ships to see than lighthouse beams from lighthouses built along the European coastline. In the early 1800s, the U.S. used a system of lamps and reflections from Winslow, Lewis, and Argan. However, by 1822, a French engineer named John Augustin Fresnel designed a much better lens now known as the Fresnel lens. But the U.S. territory was reluctant to put up the money needed to switch out the American lenses. In 1853, the St. Augustine Tower light was replaced by a fourth-ordered Fresnel lens. Fresnel lenses were named by their size, so a first-ordered Fresnel lens would be the largest lens, and a sixth order was the smallest. It was lit by a single oil lamp that used whale oil for fuel. When the Civil War started in 1861, Florida joined the Confederacy. The Confederates did not maintain much of a defense at St. Augustine. The Union put up a naval blockade to prevent supplies from reaching St. Augustine. Before Union soldiers entered the town, Confederate sympathizers living there took out the lens and the clock tower mechanisms. The parts were hidden so that shipping would be more difficult for the Union Navy. The Union was able to get control of the area peacefully in 1862. They held the mayor of St. Augustine on their prison ship until the lens and other parts were located. The Union controlled St. Augustine for the rest of the war. The lighthouse was rebuilt in 1867, but once again the lighthouse was in danger of falling into the sea due to erosion. The U.S. Congress approved $100,000 for a new lighthouse. Construction by the U.S. Lighthouse Service began in 1871. The new lighthouse would have a 165-foot tall tower in St. Augustine, and the workers included African-American residents. A brand new First Order Fresnel lens was lit for the first time on October 15, 1874 by lighthouse keeper William R. Russell. He lived in the residence at the old St. Augustine light station. This lens is nine feet tall, which required Russell to climb inside it to light the lamps. 
St. Augustine became a popular winter resort area for rich Americans in the late 1800s. Henry Flagger, a one-time partner of John D. Rockefeller in the Standard Oil Company, put money into creating resorts here. He built a railroad line in 1886 that connected St. Augustine to bigger cities along the East Coast. He built two large fancy hotels. A third hotel was built by another investor. Guests could arrive by train or steamship. For a while, St. Augustine was a popular destination, but this would soon change. Flagger continued to add railroad lines and hotels in other parts of Florida, and this allowed people to travel to Palm Beach, Miami, and the Key West areas. Early in the 20th century, the wealthy began to head to other parts of Florida. Many started using St. Augustine as just a stopover rather than a final destination. St. Augustine still remained a tourist town, but it was a point of interest for more families traveling by automobile on the newly constructed highways rather than by train. Tourism was still an important part of the local economy, but the railroad also helped the farming and fishing industries. After the Japan attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, a coastal lookout building was constructed at St. Augustine Light Station. Still, not much changed in the life habits of residents until the sinking of the SS Gulf American off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida on April 10, 1942. The explosion could be seen for miles. People who had rushed down to the beach saw a German U-boat surface between the shore and the sinking ship. Residents suddenly realized that the war was very close after all. This was a big wake-up call to Americans, especially those who lived along the coastline. The candle power in the lighthouse was reduced, blackout curtains were mandated in each home, and cars driven at night did not use headlights. There was another World War II incident that involved two teams of German spies. They were part of a mission that was called Operation Pastorius. This mission was okayed by Adolf Hitler. The purpose of the mission was to demoralize Americans and make them fearful, make them feel like the war was closer than they think. They were supposed to blow up U.S. defense plants, railroad lines and terminals, hydroelectric plants, and city water supplies around the East Coast. One team of spies targeted New York City, and the other team came ashore at Ponte Verdra Beach, Florida on June 16, 1942. This beach is just about 27 miles north of St. Augustine. The German submarine U-584 surfaced not more than 50 yards off of Pointe Verdra Beach. Four Nazi-trained men, dressed in American clothing, came ashore on a raft. They buried boxes of explosives and money in the sand. After burying their supplies in the sand, they walked to the Alice and Roy Landurham Jr.'s combination post office, store, service station, and ice house in St. Augustine. One of the men went inside and asked about a bus schedule. Alice Landurham stated that the man did not have an accent. The four men then took a bus to Jacksonville where they split up, with two checking into the Mayflower Hotel and two checking into the Simoleon Hotel. The next day, they were gone. The spies were supposed to return to the beach to dig up their explosives and use them to destroy the various targets. However, this never happened. Instead, the leader of the group who went to New York, George Dash, got cold feet because he felt the plan would not work. He hoped he would be treated better if he confessed to the FBI and reported the others. So he went to the FBI in Washington, D.C. and told them of the plot. The FBI didn't believe him until he dropped $84,000 in cash on an agent's desk. All the spies were captured within two weeks. 
President Roosevelt ordered them to be tried by a military tribunal. The eight men were found guilty and sentenced to death. President Roosevelt commuted Dash's sentence to 30 years and another team member to life because they had turned themselves in and testified against the others. The other six were executed by electric chair on August 8th 1942. President Truman granted the two men clemency in 1948 under the requirement that they had to be deported to the American zone of occupied Germany. After this incident, the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard set up beach patrols using jeeps, horses, and guard dogs. St. Augustine Lighthouse was stationed with armed guards so that they could keep watch on the ocean 24 hours a day. Men and women of the U.S. Coast Guard trained here and were sent to serve all over the world. St. Augustine became involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s. The problem was, public schools here were still segregated even though the Brown versus Board of Education decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954 made segregation unconstitutional. In late 1963, African Americans were trying to integrate the schools in St. Augustine along with public places such as lunch counters. Protesters were frequently arrested and sometimes subject to Ku Klux Klan violence. Similar to what was happening in other southern towns and cities, local college students were holding nonviolent protests. There continued to be arrests and sometimes violence. The civil rights leader of St. Augustine, Robert Hayling, asked Martin Luther King Jr. for help in the spring of 1964. Together, Hayling, King, and Andrew Young organized peaceful protests such as sit-ins and marches in St. Augustine from May until July of 1964. Hundreds of black and white protesters were arrested, and the jails were almost at capacity. This was the only place in Florida where Dr. King was arrested. Photographs and news coverage of protesters being arrested and violent attacks by the KKK were shown around the United States and the world. The events here increased support for the civil rights movement and added pressure for the passage of the Civil Rights Act, which did pass in 1964. This act also led to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. 1965 was an important year for the local history of St. Augustine. It was the 400th anniversary of the founding of the city. It was decided that the colonial part of the city should be restored and the historic St. Augustine Preservation Board was formed. Within a few years, 36 Neuer buildings were reconstructed to their historical state. The land around the Lightkeeper's house was almost lost to construction of condominiums in the 1980s. The original house had burned down and the local government decided the land should be sold. The Junior Service League offered to restore the property and turn the area into a maritime museum. Luckily for us, the land was put into the National Registry of Historic Places. After the next 15 years, the Junior Service League was able to raise $1.2 million. They were able to restore the Keeper's House, the Lighthouse Tower, and the original Fresnel lens. The lens had been damaged by someone who shot the lens, which damaged 19 prisms. The lens was rebuilt in 1993, and the Maritime Museum opened in early 1994. Which, isn't that just the most Southern American thing you can think of? What happened to the lens? I don't know. Somebody shot it. Oh my God. That's just wow. <laughs> anyway, today the St. Augustine Lighthouse and Maritime Museum Incorporated owns the entire light station property. Museum archaeologists have put together a collection of about 19,000 objects to help tell the history of the area. Archaeologists continue to work to uncover the 500-year maritime history. Today, they continue to search for shipwrecks and monitor known sites for damage. The lens is still at today, but it does not use whale oil or the giant Fornell lens. Instead, it's a 1,000-watt light bulb that has been installed. 
There are 219 steps leading to the top viewing platform. From here, a visitor is rewarded with a great view of St. Augustine, the Atlantic Ocean, and the beach. Visitors can experience hands-on activities and exhibits, tours, nature trails, and other activities. But the maritime history is not the only thing people come here for. Most people come to try to find a little ghostly activity. For some reason, lighthouses are a beacon for not only ships, but they seem to be a beacon for ghosts. Many ghosts are said to haunt this lighthouse and the lighthouse keeper's house. The activity is so frequent that the museum runs ghost tours at night so you can see for yourself if the activity is true. Many people have claimed to see shadow figures, full-bodied apparitions, hear footsteps, disembodied voices, the whole nine. Now that we know the over 500-year history of this town and the area surrounding the lighthouse, it might be no surprise to anyone that this place is really haunted. The TV show Ghost Hunters, or TAPS for those of you who know them as TAPS, they have investigated the lighthouse three separate times. Each time, they have recorded some compelling evidence. Let's take a tour of the grounds and hear some of the ghost stories from what some people call the most haunted lighthouse in the United States of America. We will be starting off our tour in the wooded area surrounding the lighthouse. It is here that the spirits of three little girls love to play with guests. Two of the ghosts are believed to be the daughters of a former lighthouse superintendent named Hezekiah Petty and one of the girls' close friends. The three girls passed away due to a tragic accident. During the reconstruction of the lighthouse, Superintendent Petty noticed that the lighthouse was going to take much longer to build than expected. He missed his family so much that he moved them down to Florida from Maine so that he could be with his family. He had three daughters named Mary, Eliza, and Carrie, and one son named Edward. The children loved to play outside around the construction equipment and made friends with the children of the workers. Their favorite game was to ride the rail car down the hill. This rail car was used to transport supplies from the pier near the waterfront up to the lighthouse. One day in 1872, two of Petty's daughters and three of their friends got into the rail car and went down the hill as usual. But this time, the cart broke loose, sending the rail car over the edge into the sea, trapping the young girls inside. A construction worker saw this happen and ran down to the water's edge to try to save the children, but he was too late. While he was able to save two of the children, the other three drowned by the time he could reach them. From my research, I found out that Petty's daughters were named Eliza and Mary, and the other child that passed away is unknown because she was African American, and at the time, people did not keep records of people who, well, weren't white. And I think that is really sad. But the girls don't seem to care about skin tone because they are still good friends in the afterlife. These girls have been seen playing in the woods around the lighthouse and the lightkeeper's house. They like to peek around the trees and corners of the buildings at guests. 
People who have visited reported hearing the sound of children playing and giggling in the woods. Full-bodied apparitions have been seen of all three of the girls, and one is reportedly dressed in a powder blue dress, the same one she drowned in. The three girls are very active inside the lighthouse as well, and they love to play pranks on the staff and guests. According to one account, a lighthouse staff member was closing up for the night, and he was on his way back down the lighthouse when he heard the sound of giggling above him, thinking he left a guest at the top of the stairs or that someone could possibly be hiding inside the lighthouse. He went up the stairs to check, but he found no one. As he was on his way back down, he was almost to the bottom when he heard giggling coming from, this time, the very bottom of the stairs. When he reached the bottom level, there was absolutely no one there. Another crazy story is of a woman who was on the Dark of the Moon's tour. She was standing for a while on the first step of the staircase listening to a tour guide. When it was time to move up the stairs, she went to take her first step only to find out that someone had untied her shoelace and then retied the lace to the metal banister. And if that was not enough for you, the girls also like to hang out in the basement at the lightkeeper's house. Have you ever played hide and seek with a ghost before? Because according to tour guides, she and two guests on the tour were in the basement when one of the guests had an EMF detector with her and was trying to get an interaction from the girls. She asked them if they wanted to play hide and seek and the EMF detector went off. So the group said that they would come and find them if they hid. They counted to 10 and walked around the basement with the EMF detector and the EMF detector went off under the stairs. She then asked if they wanted to play again and the EMF detector went off again as if to say yes. They searched for them again and this time the EMF detector went off in a completely different spot in the basement and then the energy completely disappeared once a new group entered the basement. Now, playing hide and go seek with a ghost is one crazy experience, but the three girls are not the only ghosts lingering around the old lightkeeper's house. An entity that people call the man likes to hide in the basement. He appears as a tall, dark, shadowy figure and he comes with a feeling of dread. Many visitors who have a run-in with this shadowy figure say they suddenly feel doom or fear. The sudden smell of cigar smoke is also blamed on this figure. Some people think that this shadowy figure is a former lighthouse keeper named Joseph Ander. Joseph fell to his death off of the scaffolding he was on while he was outside painting the watchtower in 1859. Many people believe that he died so suddenly that he doesn't know he passed away. He seems to still go about his rounds and smoke cigars. Other claims from the house is the sound of footsteps, furniture moving on its own, objects being moved from where they were left, and random cold spots. Another terrifying claim is people hearing a man screaming as if someone has just fallen off the top of the tower. When people go run to look and see if someone's hurt, luckily there's no one there. But some people think this is the residual scream of poor Joseph as he fell from the tower. The lighthouse itself is extremely active. There have been reports of a woman in white that stands at the watchtower's edge. No one knows who this woman could be, but she is only there before bad storms. This leads some to think that she is some type of omen or warning sign so that the lightkeeper would know that a bad storm was blowing in. Because remember, back in the old days, we didn't have our weather apps, so storms just came upon us and no one knew they were coming sometimes. 
Inside the tower has so much activity considering how small the space it is. Now, when I say small, I mean, sure, it's 165 feet tall, but the staircase to get up to the top is just one long spiral staircase up a skinny tube. So there is only one way up and one way down. There are many entities that like to mess with guests and staff. Like the little girls who love to mess with people on the stairs, other entities have been seen walking up and down when the lighthouse should be empty. Ghost Hunters has been to the lighthouse three separate times. On their first visit, they caught a video of something moving above them on the staircase and then something or someone peeking over the railing looking down at them. And if you watch that video, it's quite creepy and quite compelling. The activity on the staircase ranges from intelligent to residual. The sound of someone starting from the door and going up to the top of the lighthouse and then the sound of them returning to the bottom is the same motions that an original lightkeeper would have used when they went up the stairs to dump oil into the lamp and keep it lit and then go back down the stairs to go back to the lightkeeper's house. Many believe that this is just the ghost of a former lightkeeper that is just going about his rounds in the afterlife. Some think that this also could be Joseph who haunts the lightkeeper's house. You know, he's still going about his rounds because he doesn't know he's dead. Today, the lighthouse has exhibits along the staircase, and one of these is an old oil bucket. This exhibit explains the jobs of light keepers, and they even let you pick up the old bucket to see how heavy it would have been for the light keeper to bring oil up to the top of the light every single day. This bucket has been known to be picked up and then dropped by unseen hands. And some tour guides have even heard it moving around upstairs, almost as if a lightkeeper is trying to lift it and bring it back to its proper place. Caught EVPs, disembodied voices, cold spots, and EMF spikes are also common inside the lighthouse. One tour guide claims that he was once tripped by someone grabbing his ankle through the metal railing. People have also reported getting their hair pulled, clothes tugged, and felt touched by unseen hands. The door at the top of the watchtower is supposed to be locked with a padlock at night after the tours are over. However, staff have come back the next day to find it wide open. The door at the bottom of the lighthouse also likes to open and close on its own. When the new version of Ghost Hunters went back to the lighthouse last year, they caught a cabinet door opening on its own on film along with footsteps and other strange sounds. This lighthouse has a lot of interesting paranormal activity. It also has a trickster poltergeist type of element to some of the hauntings. For instance, there is also a man in blue. When he is seen, it makes the staff worry. He has popped up a few times over history of the lighthouse. He likes to scare people by making banging noises, following close behind the guests, and he gives off a vibe of an ominous presence. People often feel scared when they feel his energy and people suddenly want to leave the property because they don't feel safe. This could be said for a lightkeeper who once refused to go back to work because he said a man in blue bothered him an entire night, eventually chasing him all the way down the stairs and out of the lighthouse. The lightkeeper never came back after this incident. Not even the gift shop is safe in this location. Shadow figures dart around in the area and items move around quite a lot, especially when workers know that no one was around to move the items they just put down. Little music boxes that are for sale also like to wind and play on their own, which some attribute to the little girls. This location is unique. It's not like there are hundreds of different ghosts. It's only a few, but it's so active. So why is this place so haunted? There are some in the parish 
paranormal field that believe that lighthouses act as a beacon for the dead and not just the ships on the water. There is also another theory that water is a conductor for spirits to manifest. Moving waters like streams, rivers, springs, and oceans would conduct a lot of energy for ghosts to feed off of, creating a lot of paranormal activity. When you think about all the conflict and death that has happened in the area in this 500-year history, it might be the perfect storm for ghosts to manifest themselves and come to say hello to us or try to scare us out of the lighthouse. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope that you guys enjoyed my little history about the St. Augustine Lighthouse and the area surrounding it. I had a lot of fun learning about this. I didn't know enough about the history of St. Augustine Lighthouse. I knew it was a hot spot for paranormal activity, but I was really blown away by all the history that was there. Also, I think this was a suggestion from one of you guys. I have a list of suggestions that I'm now going to start going through, and Lighthouses was there, and it had a little, like, mark, which meant I should have wrote a name down for who suggested it and I didn't and I'm really I would like to apologize to that person I tried to find who told me I posted it on Facebook and Instagram asking hey if you were the one who you know recommended a lighthouse I would love to name drop you but I couldn't find it through any of my I checked everywhere and I just couldn't find who it was I could have dreamed it too because I'm having Groundhog Day over and over again in this house, but I'm pretty sure that one of you guys suggested lighthouses and I'm really sorry if I didn't say, hey, this was suggested by so-and-so. So I wanted to apologize and if that was you, please uh, email me, let me know so that way I can name drop you in the next episode as being the person who inspired this episode. My next episode is also from my listener suggestion list, so I'm really excited to get that one started for you guys. If you want to find out more about me, like links to my Patreon page, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that, you can check out that in the links down below, along with all the sources for all the information I get. I always post every single website I used down below. Also, if you are listening to this on iTunes, please make sure you rate and review down below. Um, giving me stars is great, but it doesn't do anything for their weird algorithm. So you have to actually leave a review. It doesn't have to be long. You can just say fun or great. Some people have said that. Just leave some stars and just write a little something in the tagline and then press review and then that'll help me out and help other people be able to find the show through iTunes. So again, thank you guys so much for listening. I can't wait to see you guys back here again soon. As always, stay healthy, stay safe, and try to stay positive. Bye, everybody. Thank you.